0: ...who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us, uh, the first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So too, the second and third, down uh, to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore of the seven whose wife will she be for they all had her but Jesus answered them you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like angels in heaven and as for the resurrection of the dead have you not read what was uh, said to you by God i am the god of abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for this uh, passage and uh, for the hope of Easter, that Jesus has indeed conquered death. And we pray that you would send your spirit now to us to teach us the meaning of Easter what we celebrate, our deep joy, our deep hope, that you may put that hope deeper in our hearts and that it may give us joy and strength as we serve you in this world. And so be our teacher now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So for centuries, um, it has been the assumption in most of the Christian world that the primary purpose of becoming a Christian is so that you can go to heaven when you die. That's why you become a Christian. You go to heaven when you die. And of course, that is one of the most precious promises of being a Christian: is that when you die in Christ, your soul goes to be in the presence of God. And um, but the message tends to be then that the earth is a place full of sin and misery, and we want to get away from this place to go to another spiritual place. And so if we have our sins forgiven, we can go to the other spiritual place where God and where the angels are, and then we can spend eternity in that other place with them. And actually for many people, this may be you this morning as you come, you say, well, you know, that's the primary thing that Easter is about, is that on Easter, Jesus rose from the dead and he showed us that there is an existence beyond the grave. After you die, your soul goes on. But what's fascinating is that, you know, the hope of leaving this world so that my soul can go spend eternity somewhere else is actually almost the exact opposite of the meaning of Easter. Because on Easter morning, so Jesus dies on the cross, and then on the third day, when he rose, the the Bible doesn't tell us anything about his soul going to heaven. The thing that the Bible almost bends over backwards to be insistent about is that just the opposite thing happened, is that his soul came back to his body. His body was raised. And actually, you know, he goes around after he's raised from the dead, is what he's doing. He goes and he eats with all of his friends. He says he eats with them. I'm not a ghost. Look, I'm eating the food. Or he tells his friends, you want to touch my side? Touch my side. You can feel my side. Um, It's not just my soul that's still alive. My body has been raised. Death, bodily death, has experienced a reversal. And, uh, you know, if you're visiting with us this morning, you, you might think that sounds very odd. You know, a man who's fully dead and then his body comes back to life. His, the body that was dead is now raised and is walking around. And uh, what does it mean? And why, why do Christians care so much about that happening? There was this guy 2,000 years ago whose body was raised from the dead. Well, what happened on Easter when Jesus' body rose from the dead, that event was a little foretaste. It was a microcosm of what God intends to do with his whole creation. And so, you know, the story of the Bible goes that God is a g- made this world, he's a good God, and he made everything in it is beautiful, and this good world has been ruined by humanity, you know, humanity's violent, we have all this warfare and all this selfishness. And uh, and so uh, God decides not to scrap this world. We often think, you know, maybe God's going to scrap this world so we can go somewhere else. He doesn't scrap this world. His purposes are to renew and redeem and make this world right again and set all things right and the resurrection is the beginning of that process that is the wild hope of easter the renewal of this creation and now if you think that's strange you know the resurrection of body um or or sorry if you don't think that's strange that people's bodies the hope that what God did for Jesus when he raised his body from the dead, for those who are in Jesus, that is their expect, expectation, that he would do that for us. If you don't think that's strange, you're probably not hearing it right. Because it is, it is immensely strange, but um, this passage I just read to you is one of the only recorded discussions that we have of Jesus explaining the resurrection, explaining what happened on Easter. And it turns out that this passage is very strange. You, maybe when I read that, you thought, this is the Easter passage? It's kind of strange. But actually, it's rich, and we learn so much about the meaning of Easter just from these words. And so this morning, we're going to uh, study Jesus' words together, and in particular, we learned three things about the meaning of Easter. That first, resurrection is unique to Jesus, Okay, no one else is offering resurrection. It's, there's nowhere else in the world you find anything like it. That's how stra- it's because it's so strange. Second, resurrection is the fulfillment of every human longing. So much of what is driving our life actually finds its answer in the resurrection. I'll explain that. And then third, resurrection is the only answer to death. So resurrection is unique to Jesus. It's the fulfillment of every human longing and it is the only answer to death. So first of all, resurrection is unique to jesus now when we often think about something like the resurrection someone who's dead is raised from the dead we often think you know we understand ancient people believed things like that you know that uh that dead people could be raised but you know as modern people we've come to a place because of science etc you know that we just can't believe in, in dead people rising but we understand that way back then 2000 years ago they believed stuff like that and i'll tell you first of all that, 2,000 years ago, people knew that dead people didn't rise from the dead. They'd never met anyone that had risen from the dead. They knew that once you were dead, you stayed dead. But we might say, yeah, I know that, you know, maybe they never witnessed anyone, but they had a worldview that allowed for that kind of thing. And we have a worldview, you know, scientific worldview, that just doesn't allow for that kind of thing. But the truth is, actually, they did not have a worldview that allowed for that. Um, If you look, first of all, the Greeks, the Greeks um, had a belief that the body was chaotic, was evil, was, uh, you know, your body has all these passions and it does all these things that you can't control. And, and actually the goal, is, you know, your body is a prison that your soul is in. And the goal is for your soul to be released from the prison of your body so that you, you know, you would never want to go back to your body. You don't want your body to be raised. You're looking forward to the day for your body to be dead and you finally don't have to deal with it anymore. And so the idea that someone's body's going to be raised from the dead, it, it would never even occur to a Greek thinking kind of person. But it's also true for a Jew in the Old Testament. You know, the Old Testament doesn't say a lot about resurrection. You know, there's, there's a few places, you know, Daniel 12.2 says this, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So some Jews believed that at the end of history there was going to be this resurrection where God's people were going to be raised from the dead. No one believed that there was going to be one guy in the middle of history that was going to experience resurrection. And in this passage, the Sadducees, Sadducees were the ruling class of priests in Jerusalem in Jesus' Jesus' day, explicitly denied believing in the resurrection. You see that there in verse 23. The same day, Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question. And so here are Jews living in the first century who believe the Bible, and you know, we know from other sources, this is what the Sadducees believe, that they believe that souls disappear along with bodies at death. It's very similar to us. We, I mean, our culture, we believe, you, know, when you go, maybe some people believe that your soul goes on into the light or something like that, but in general, science says, you know, you fall, go into the ground and you die, and there's no existence after it. That's what the Sadducees believe. And so what happens to Jesus on Easter was as unprecedented and unexpected in the first century world as it would be unprecedented and unexpected for us as modern people. It was totally foreign to them. There's, no, there's not an ounce of evidence that anyone was expecting that. And the truth is, the uniqueness of the resurrection, is not just unique throughout, you know, throughout history in the ancient world, it's unique even in the modern world. Um, actually, I was just a couple of weeks ago, I was talking with uh, Sherry Baird, some of you know Sherry, who uh, he's come to Christ a couple of years ago and has extensive uh, background in uh, uh, Buddhism, and, you know, we will often talk about Buddhism, and she'll say, you know, there's a lot of, a number of parallels between Christianity and Bu- Buddhism, you know, for example, uh, in Buddhism, you know, you, you you're encouraged to not form too deep of attachments to kind of uh, temporal things, because, you know, they're going to disappoint you, and Christians should not form too deep attachments to kind of temporal things like wealth and beauty and things like that. But she said, you know, there's one thing that makes Christianity totally different than Buddhism. The thing, that, that's, no, it doesn't, the thing that, that's nowhere in Buddhism, and there's nothing like it, is the resurrection. That is this strange oddity to Christianity that's totally unique. And You know, if I could just pause for a second here and point out that, you know, what a culture believes about the life to come um, has huge implications for how individual humans are treated in that culture. Um, You know, so for example, I I mentioned the Greeks, that they they believed that the body was a prison, and, you know, that your soul is trying to get away from the body. And so that view of this whole kind of world is that this world is chaotic, and we need to get to the spirit world of the forms where things are perfected. And what that causes is when there are systems of injustice in the governments of, of, you know, earthly kingdoms, there's very little reason to try to reform the ways of this world because, we, you know, we're just trying to get away from this world. Who cares about this world? And so it actually enables uh, oppressive governments to stay the way they are. Who's going to resist them? Why would, you know, the world's always going to be evil. Who, who would even try to change it? Or you take even Eastern ideas of, of reincarnation. That if you believe that a poor person... Is paying for their sins in a previous life, or a disabled person? You know, are you going to relieve their suffering and say, well, you know, the tendency is to be like, well, that you got yourself in that position, and if you live a good life, maybe in next life you'll have a better life, and so you, that creates caste systems where people are stuck in in you know uh, lower classes and they're they're you know mistreated by culture. This is, comes from a view of the life to come, or if you take the idea, you know, a very common idea actually in Bellingham that when you die you're like a drop in the ocean, and your personality just kind of morphs into the oneness of nature. And it says that your individual personality is smothered. If you apply that in a culture, what ends up happening is that the needs of the nation always become more important than the needs of the individual. The individual becomes smothered. Your individual personality doesn't matter. We're just all gonna going to be go into the ocean of existence. And so we don't care for the individuals. And what all this tells us is that beliefs about the life to come deeply shape the actions of a culture. And when you say that God raises individual bodies to a beautiful life, it is the the most robust claim that bodies and personalities of every individual on the planet matter to God. And uh, just to give you an example of, you know, uh, an implication of that. This is why Christians invented hospitals. I mean, we take hospitals for granted. They were invented by Christians because their imagination had been shaped by the resurrections. Jesus' body had come back to life. God is about healing bodies. God is about healing this world. So we better get in the business of healing diseases and healing people's bodies so they can experience the wholeness. We want to anticipate the resurrection now. Or it was Christians who invented that the poor are a class of people who had a tremendous amount of dignity to them. You know, if we have any sense that, the, you know, the poor deserve some kind of dignity, that's not been true throughout human history or human cultures. Where did that come from? It's because Christians believe in the resurrection, the poor are going to be reigning with Jesus. They're going to be like kings and princes with Jesus. They're going to be rich. It's like, well, you better make friends with them now because they're going to be the ones in power in the age to come. And so, you, you know, you better treat them well. And so the, the Christians treated them well. And it's even why human societies... Until they have come to believe the gospel, look at a society, and unless it has some point in its history that it's been deeply impacted by the gospel, human societies still don't understand the dignity of individual humans and individual human rights. And what happens is the resurrection is not just some quirky religious belief that weird Christians believe in, that bodies come back to life. No, the resurrection is a worldview worldview. And it completely shapes how cultures and politics uh, uh, work, and societies work. And the resurrection, which you know, was so strange to the ancient world, no one was expecting it, so uh, strange to us, is uniquely offered in Jesus. I just tell you, find anyone else. Who else is even pretending to offer something like the healing of the physical body into an indestructible life? Who's pretending to offer the reversal of bodily death? No one's even pretending to offer. Jesus is the only one who has any credible claim um, on that kind of promise. Okay, so the first thing is that resurrection is unique to Jesus. Second thing we see in this passage is that resurrection is the fulfillment of every human longing. And you see this in an interesting way in these verses. You know, the Sadducees asked this question to Jesus, verse 24. Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up the children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died and having no children left his wife to his brother. So to uh, to the second, third, uh, down to the seventh after them all the woman died in the resurrection therefore of the seven whose wife will she be for they all had her let me just explain this briefly what the sadducees are talking about here is something in ancient israel called the leveret law which was a law that if a man was married and uh didn't have any children there was a question about where his land would go the land was the inheritance of israel in the old testament was a big part of their identity and so we had an uh so uh uh, so, if the man died, uh, the brother was obligated to marry the woman to give, give her children so that they would have an heir that would take the land. Now, I know that raises all kinds of questions about whether that was a good law or not. I, I don't have time to address that today. But the main point of the Sadducees' question was this. That, caused, that raises a problem for the resurrection. This woman had five husbands, and if they're all going to be raised from the dead, who's going to be her husband in the age to come? Gotcha, Jesus. And Jesus answers in verse 30, for, the, uh, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now for some of you might say, you know, this is more, sounds more like going to heaven and being somewhere else. You know, we're going to be like angels, right? So we're going to be spirits. And that sounds like we're going to the spirit world. It doesn't sound like we're being raised as humans in bodies, um, Uh, You know, Jesus is saying going and be angels is exactly what we do. But you'll notice that Jesus does not say that we will become angels, but that we will be like angels, and only in this regard that angels don't get married or have sex or have children, and neither will we in the resurrection. Which raises a very important question. Because for some of you say, you know, okay, resurrection is about the healing of human life, the restoration of human life. The fullness and wholeness of it? I mean, what's more essential to human life than sexuality and intimacy and, you know, marriage and partnership and relationship? And you say, we're not, I mean, that sounds very anti-earthly to not have something like that in the resurrection and the life to come. Well, I think the fact that we raise that question, we have a problem with that, reveals something about us. Because I mentioned that the resurrection is the thing that fulfills all of our deepest longings and for many of us many of you the way that you anticipate your deepest longings being fulfilled in this life are that you're going to meet someone i'm going to have a partner sexual intimacy that i would be known i would be close i would be beheld i'd be accepted by someone someone that i could walk through life with i would have friendship with um you know uh, i'd have sexual intimacy with i would have pleasure with i would have security with that is the thing that I long for, many things. And many of you even think, you know, if I had that, my life would be happy. I, my life is unhappy, and if I had that, I know that everything would come together and it would become complete. And some of you have maybe been on that path, and you say, you know, I've been pursuing that, and I'm starting to realize that maybe this can't, a person can't complete me. I can't, a person can't make my life good and, and full as, and do all that I expect them to do. And the reason for this is because sex and intimacy and marriage and romance are only pointers to the meaning of life. They are not the meaning of life itself. And so what relationships are meant to do is to stir in us a longing, a desire. The relationships are supposed to stir in us a desire. They are not meant to satisfy the desire. And the desire they are supposed to stir us for is to be intimate with God. To be beheld by God. You know, you think of um, uh, all the things about sex, intimacy, pleasure, transcendence, risk, adoration, beauty, nakedness. These are all pointers to the deeper reality of living in God's presence. That he, it was intimacy with him that we are ultimately made for. That's why the Bible says that the church is the, the bride of Christ. To become a Christian means that we are entering into this kind of intimacy and relationship with uh, Christ, and to have um, and so to value the pointer, but not the real thing, is to miss the thing that the pointer was was made for. So you know, I'll give you an illustration of what that's like. You know, uh, my family and I we watch a show called uh, Master Chef. Is cooking, or MasterChef Junior also. Some of you might know this show. It's a cooking show, cooking competition. And, you know, whenever we watch the show, uh, my son, Will, is Will, kind of ambivalent about the show because he really likes the show, but he says, you know, at the end, I just want to eat the food. And I don't, you know, we don't get to eat the food. It gets us all excited about food and cooking, and then, you know, we don't actually get to eat it. And so to um, imagine that uh, one day, uh, Will comes home, and it's the day we're going to watch Master Chef. and he walks in, and we're going to say, hey, Will, surprise, Gordon Ramsay is here. Gordon Ramsay's the host of the show, and he's cooked all the food for us, and now we get to eat it, you know, and he walks, and he's like, hmm, I think I just want to watch the show. He's like, you want to watch the show? The whole reason the show is to get you excited about food and, you know, about cooking and about eating, and now you have the real thing, and you just want to go back to the show? And when we place romance, relationship, sexuality as the ultimate thing in our life, it's like us going and saying, I just want the show. I want the thing that's supposed to stir up the longing, but I don't want the thing itself. And the meaning and fulfillment of sex and relationships is in the resurrection when God raises our bodies and our bodies and souls are in the presence of God for endless ages. And, uh, you know, this is true not just about the pleasures of intimacy, but it's true about every pleasure. About wealth, about friends, about recreation. All the things, all the pleasures in this life are things that are simply meant to stir in us a longing for him, the giver of all those good gifts. And what this also tells us is if you are in Jesus, and that's your hope in Jesus' the resurrection, and you live a life where you may have all kinds of disappointment in this life, and you have all these kinds of things that you want to experience and you don't get to experience, or maybe relationships that you never get to have, the resurrection tells us there is no pleasure that we will miss out on in the end. They will all be ours in him. The fulfillment of all those things will be ours in him. And so here, here, we, here you have the meaning of the resurrection. Wow. First of all, the resurrection is this unique thing in Jesus. It's not just some quirky idea, but it's this worldview sh- Vision of world and humanity and life. And it is the thing that is the core uh, fulfillment of all of our deepest longings. But the last thing we see in this passage is that resurrection is the only answer to death. And this is this is crucial thing to face. You know, in our culture, we often don't think about death too much. You know, we have uh, medical advancements, and we can often think, I can put off thinking about death. You know, whatever I'm going to get, They'll probably have a cure for it by the time I get it, so, you know, I'm not too worried about it. And so, you know, there's a number of ways that we deal with death. We can ignore it. You know, we could believe in something like, you know, maybe I'll be reincarnated as another, um, uh, you know, another person, or another creature, you know, in, in a life to come. But I think one of the ways that we, uh, in our culture, often deal with death is we think in terms of a legacy. You know, I'm going to leave a legacy. I'm going to, I need to leave an impact on my community, on the world around me. And then I know that even after I die, kind of my name and who I am will live on. And, you know, uh, that's very true about traditional cultures. You know, traditional cultures that believed in ancestor worship, that was their way of saying, well, the way that you lived on was in the memory of your children. And you see something like that here in the Sadducees, verse 24. It says, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies... Having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children. It's the kind of the same word that's used for resurrection, to be raised up. And he's saying that the way a resurrection is not about me being raised, it's about my children carrying on the memory of me. And Jesus challenges the Sadducees and says that the only answer to death is the reversal of death. It's the only, it's the only reasonable answer. And he critiques the Sadducees in these two ways. Look at verse 29. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. So there's two critiques. They don't know the Scriptures and they don't know the power of God. Now, first of all, they don't know the Scriptures, which is kind of an odd thing to say to these Sadducees. They're all priests. And they spent much of their childhood memorizing huge parts of the scriptures. They actually know quite a lot about the scriptures. But what he's saying is there's a certain logic about the scriptures that they haven't followed. So in the ancient world, there were really two views of what what would happen to you after you die. There was the Sadducee view that says you just die and your soul disappears when you die. Or there was the Pharisees view. And the Pharisees believed that when your soul died, your soul went to be with God in heaven. And then your soul would be reunited to your body at the resurrection, at the end of history. And Jesus agrees with the Pharisees, and he says, verse 31, And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And he says the logic of the scripture leads you to the Pharisees' position that there has to be a resurrection. If Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are alive, there has to be a resurrection. There's a similar logic for us, I think, as modern people. Because the Bible tells us that, you know, you can look at this world, and you just look at this, you know, the sun and the moon and the stars, and you can look at all the creatures that God's made and all the animals, and they're so amazing. And when you look at all those things, the Bible says that it is obvious that God is powerful and wise. You can just look at the world and know there is a God behind this world who created this and is powerful and wise. It's, the world is shouting that to us. But there's also, you know, in humanity, we have this kind of moral fabric threaded through humanity that says, you know, you're supposed to treat people well, you should, you should love your neighbor. And that, that moral fabric tells us that God is not only powerful and wise, but he's also good and he's loving, he's benevolent. And so that raises a problem you say, wow, you have this all-powerful God, he's wise, and he's loving and he's good and he's benevolent, and yet we have this world that is filled with death and suffering and misery. How can those two things work together? Follow the logic the only answer is that there must be coming a reversal of death the logic leads us there and actually you know I've I've shared with you I read a a book by Luke Ferry Luke Ferry is an atheist um, French philosopher um, who wrote a book on the history of philosophy and he says you know the purpose of philosophy is basically to deal with death how do you deal with death and he says the only worldview in the history of the world That really has a robust answer is Christianity and the resurrection. It's the reversal. But Luke Ferry says, You know, I just can't believe it. It's just too much. It's too good to be true. I mean, who can actually, how can I believe in that as a modern person? And so his problem is not that he hasn't done the logic, his problem is Jesus' second complaint is that he does not know the power of God. There is a cynicism in our culture, a suspicion that is distrustful of hopeful things. Some of you may sense that you have some of that cynicism or distrust in your own heart. Um, you know, as you think about the world, maybe you've just had hard things happen in your life. Maybe you had di- people disappoint you. And you've actually made a resolve in your heart, you know, I'm not going to get my hopes up about people, about having a good life, about being loved. I just, because I know I'm going to be let down. And so, you know, I'm just going to accept that the world, things are hard, things are miserable, and I'm just going to grind through it. Um, Well, that could be one of the biggest resolutions of your life that will keep you from knowing the power of God, is that cynicism. And what Ezer has to say is that the power of God to open your heart and say, you know, I believe that God may be powerful and good and loving is not something you just have to believe and say, you know, maybe sometime in the future, maybe way in the future, God is going to do something, and I just got to, you know, take a leap of faith and believe that someday he's going to do something. No, the gospel says that the power of God has already been unleashed in this world. In a real place, we know the city. It was in Jerusalem. We know who the guy was who killed Jesus. Jesus. Uh, It was Pontius Pilate I mean, we know him not just from the Bible from his historical resources We know Jesus was a man. We know who the Pharisees are who are asking this question in real history He was crucified and the power of God came upon him and he was raised to an indestructible life We are not hoping for something in the future We are hoping about something that has already happened in this world in the past and it is God's pledge to us that he will do it again in the future and that same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that is transforming lives in communities like this all over the world where people are coming to know the love of God and new life is growing up inside of them. And that power is going to be unleashed in full in a coming age where God will set all things right in this good world that he's made. And so my invitation to you this morning is to first ask, have you done the logic Have you seen that the resurrection is something that's only offered in Jesus? Something that is a worldview-forming vision of, of humanity in the world, and that resurrection is the only thing that can fulfill our deepest longings. All the things that we're looking for to fulfill our longings have failed us because they were pointing us to this. And that ultimately, resurrection is the only satisfying answer to death itself. You do that logic. And then it leads you to a second question. Will you let down your cynicism? Will you let down your distrusting spirit that says, I won't trust anyone, and I won't hope? What would happen if you believe that there is a good, powerful creator behind this world who is renewing all things, and that renewal of all things could include you? I admit that the resurrection is strange. I never would have expected it. I never would have planned it. I never would have thought of it. But the resurrection is the strange key that unlocks the mystery of this strange world and the strange life that God has called each one of us to live. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, pray that your spirit would help us to do the logic of the resurrection, but even more that you would soften our hearts to hope and believe that you really are good, that we'd walk through this life trusting, believing uh, that we are yours, and that you will renew and redeem all things. And So we pray that you'd give us joy this Easter, you'd give us joy this year. The joy and hope would be the thing that defines us as a people. Pray this in Christ's name.